So it's a privilege to be up here today to bring to you the Word of God as we continue in the summer series in the Psalms. You'll get tired of hearing that by the end of the summer. Um, so today it's from Psalm 24. And I want to thank Bobby. He's not here this morning, but I want to thank him for feeding us so well last week from a psalm of lament in Psalm 42, which is 24, flipped upside down. <laughs> so Psalm 24 is not a lament at all, but a song of praise that many in church history see as, a, as fulfilled in the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven after his resurrection. This psalm is concerning the kingdom of Jesus Christ his providential kingdom by which he rules the world and the kingdom of his grace by which he rules in his church. Psalm 24 reminds us that God is owner of everything. And he invites us to share in the riches as his children as he rules over all that he owns. Do you ever think back uh, of, grow, uh, of a time of growing up in your, in your parents' house? Um, you know, when, uh, so I remember as a kid in my parents' house thinking, well, this is my house. And I would even tell my peers, that's my house. Or my parents' car. That's my car. When neither one of those statements is technically accurate. Um, I had full access to both and could use both at my leisure, but they weren't mine. One time when I was in high school, um, I was driving my car, my car, my dad's car, and uh, I was in a wreck, and it wasn't my fault, <coughs> and the, it's true. <laughs> the police report exists somewhere, um, but the, uh, the insurance company of the other, other driver um, paid out a large sum of money uh, to us, and I mistakenly thought that was my money. <laughs> my reasoning was that at the time this happened, I was driving a car, and if the wreck hadn't happened, there wouldn't even be any money to talk about. <laughs> so my dad's only response was, son, the car belongs to me. End of discussion. <clears throat> the setting of this psalm was possibly written to be sung when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. Up from the ha house of Obed-Edom in 2 Samuel 6, 12-19. The words of this psalm are suitable for the dance of joy which David led the way up to Jerusalem. The eye of the psalmist looked, however, beyond the upgoing of the Ark to the ascension of the King of Glory. This psalm is simply titled, A Psalm of David. If you'll please turn to Psalm 24 and follow along as I read. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains the world, and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? 
And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. And has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face. Even Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is this King of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty and for your complete ownership of everything that exists. Thank you for the privilege to preach your word this morning as I am unworthy, Lord, in and of myself. And if not for your grace, would have nothing to offer. I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts this morning and give us understanding so that we can obey your statutes. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the king of glory and who entered the gates of heaven as a forerunner and our advocate. Be with us as we worship you with your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the outline for the text this morning is broken into three sections. Verses 1 and 2 speak of the king's proprietorship. He simply owns everything. Next, in verses 3 through 6, we'll look at the king's proposition. Who may enter into his kingdom? And then he gives us the qualifications. Lastly, we will look at the king's procession, which ultimately describes the Lord's ascension through the gates of heaven to God's eternal kingdom. The first point, the king's proprietorship. Verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And in Genesis 1.1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then in the following verses he gives details on exactly what that looks like and how that took place. It's not enough to say the earth belongs to God. Everything is his. Everything. Everything in it 
every body in it, every soul, everything produced by the labor of, of our hands, every animal, every offspring, mineral, every gem, liquid. I could go on, but you get the point. His proprietorship is all-inclusive. And you'll find many scriptures to support his claim. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, Behold to the Lord your God, belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. 1 Corinthians 10, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Sound familiar? They're obviously quoting, he's obviously quoting Psalm 24, 1. Psalm 50, 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Ezekiel 18. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. Here we have the king represented as proprietor of the whole earth. Webster defines the word proprietor as a person who has the legal right or exclusive title to something. Owner. The king owns the rights to all that is in the world since he has made it and everything in it. On the occasion on which it is believed that this psalm was written, as we mentioned earlier, in the bringing up of the ark of God and placing it in the tabernacle. Nothing could be more appropriate than that which would recognize the universal supremacy of God. Verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The idea here is that, according to the language of Scripture, a foundation was laid. In Job 38, 6, it says, On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? And Genesis 1, 9 says, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. The earth became what it was by the fact that God founded it. Therefore, whatever it produces belongs to Him. Do you look as God to go, Do you look at God as complete owner of everything? Let me suggest three ways that we can acknowledge his proprietorship. The first way is to talk to him. Psalm 95, 2 says, Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, and let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Do you include thanksgiving as a regular, regular component of prayer? There's an acrostic that is helpful when you pray. A-C-T-S, Acts. And many of you are probably familiar with this. It stands for adoration, 
confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which are all ways to recognize him as the sole proprietor of the earth. The second way in which we can acknowledge God as proprietor is to tell of him. Psalm 9.1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord and with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. When was the last time you saw something in creation? A mountain, the ocean. Summertime, so many of you can relate to that, going to the beach. Flowers, the sky. And pointed out to someone that God is proprietor or owner of all that we see. Take time to tell somebody of the wonders of God. The third way in which we can acknowledge his proprietorship is to tithe to him. To give back to him what is, what's already his. First Chronicles 29 says, Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. This verse really encapsulates our, the attitude that our hearts should have and acknowledge that everything that we have comes from Him. We are simply giving back to Him which already belongs to Him. Do you acknowledge that everything you have ultimately belongs to Him? Having examined the king's proprietorship and acknowledged that he owns everything, we now turn to the king's proposition. His invitation to dwell with him in his kingdom and abide with him for eternity. The king's proposition, verses 3 through 6. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall re receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. Encyclopedia Britannica defines proposition as something such as a plan or offer that is presented to a person or a group of people to consider. Here we have the offer of the king to dwell with him in his palace. The qualifications are not external, but by inner character. A people purified and made ready 
to dwell in the hill of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says, It is uphill work for the creature to reach the creator. Where is the mighty climber who can scale the towering heights? Nor is it height alone. It is glory too. Whose eye shall see the king in his beauty and dwell in his palace? In heaven he reigns most gloriously. Who shall be permitted to enter into his royal presence? God made all, but he will not save all. There is a chosen company who shall have the singular honor of dwelling with him in his high abode. These choice spirits desire to commune with God, and their wish shall be granted them. The solemn inquiry of the text is repeated in another form. Who shall be able to stand or continue there? He cast away the wicked. Who can then abide in his house? Who is he that can gaze upon the Holy One and can abide in the blaze of his glory? Certainly, none may venture to commune with God upon the footing of the law. But grace can make us meet to behold the vision of the divine presence. The question before us is one which all should ask for themselves. And none should be at ease until they have received an answer of peace. With careful self-examination, let us inquire. Lord, is it I? What is required of the acceptable worship of God? What will prepare a man for heaven? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who is worthy to stand before God? In verse 4, we have the answer. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. In the parallel passage in Psalm 15, 2, the answer to the question is, He that walks with integrity and works righteousness. Clean hands. He who would be recognized as a friend and worshiper of the king must be an upright man. A man not living in the practice of sin, but striving always to do that which is right. The hands are the instruments by which we can achieve anything. And therefore, to have clean hands is equivalent to being upright. Pure heart. Not just those whose external conduct is upright, but whose heart is pure. The principle here stated, which enters always into true religion, that it does not consist in outward conformity to the law or to the mere performance of rites and ceremonies or to external morality but that it controls the heart and produces purity of motive 
and of thought. Verse 4b, sworn deceitfully. Deceitfully, that which is vain or false, possibly idol worship. Not sworn deceitfully. People who deal honestly with God and man. Now listen to these and, and ask yourself, is this me? Do I do this? People who deal honestly, both with God and man. In their dealings with God and with men, they have not lied, nor broken promises, or violated their engagements, or taken any false oaths. Those that have no regard to the duties of truth or the honor of God's name are unfit for a place on God's holy hill. Verses 5 and 6. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those that seek him, that seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. The blessing here is the king's favor and friendship. He will be regarded as his because he has the character that we just described in verse 4. Clean hands and a pure heart. Can we have purity on our own? Can we do it for ourselves? One commentator writes, they do not ascend the hill of the Lord as givers, but receivers. And they do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness which, with which they have received. To ascend the hill of the Lord, you must be made righteous from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You must be made righteous by God. And the only way for that to happen is through faith in Jesus Christ. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus has gone before us. And he's paid the penalty of death that we all owe because we have sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're included in that category because it says all. Not some. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So the penalty or the payment for that sin is death. But the second part of that verse is so beautiful because it says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's free. You know what free means? 
We don't do anything for it. It's given. And so eternal life is given to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It makes me just want to say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ through repentance and belief. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. Have you done that? When the question is asked, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? What will you say in that moment? If you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, you would have to answer, no, Lord, I cannot. However, if you desire to say, yes, Lord, by your grace, I can, then come down after the service and talk to me or one of the other elders. We'll be up front. Heaven is for those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. One preacher puts it this way. Dear one, it is possible that you are saying... Those funny noises aren't coming from me, by the way. It's the baptism. <laughs> In case you were wondering. Dear one, it is possible that you are saying, I shall never come into the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the front runner of those who trust him, follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. But how can I get the character described, you ask? The Spirit of God will give that to you. He will create in you a new heart, and a right spirit. Ezekiel 36. Faith in Jesus Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. And has all the virtues wrapped up in it. Faith stands by the fountain filled with blood. And as she washes therein clean hands and a pure heart. A holy soul and a truthful tongue are given to her. Lastly, in this section, we see the word Selah. There's different opinions on what that word actually means. It's usually, it usually comes as a, as a pause. But for the sake of simplicity, I'll just quote Dr. John Phillips. There, what do you think of that? 
Which is a pretty good definition, I think. So we've seen the king's proprietorship. And we've seen the king's proposition. Now we're going to look at the king's procession. The king's procession. Verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. And, and imagine, imagine these words being spoken in heaven. And the heavenly host and all those behind the doors are, are shouting these. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Lift up your heads. The gates of the Lord's dwelling place are here in this psalm personified. The idiom, lift up the head, often means be confident, bold, in which our Savior was both as he approached the gates. In Judges 8, we read, So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. Job 10, if I am wicked, woe to me. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift up my head. I am sated with disgrace and conscience of my misery. Who is this majestic king? Perhaps the gates ask this question in response to the command given in verse 7. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a title which here pictures the Lord as a mighty warrior who leads armies into battle. Whenever God is referred to as the Lord of hosts, it implies that God reigns over his heavenly and earthly armies. The the, when you hear Jehovah Sabaoth, that's what it implies, that God reigns over his heavenly and earthly armies. So I want you to picture this. I want you to picture a scene in heaven. All those behind the ancient doors must have been like when they hear lift up your heads, they must have been like uh I don't think so, because no man has ever dared to come and approach these gates and command them to open. No man has ever done that. 
So with sheer unbelief, they shout, Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory that demands that we open the gates? They are called upon to lift their heads as though with all their glory were not great enough for the all-glorious king. Let all things do their utmost to honor so great a prince. Let the highest heaven put on unusual loftiness in honor of the king of glory, who fresh from the cross and the tomb now rides through the gates of the new Jerusalem is higher than the heavens, great and everlasting as they are. Those gates of pearl are all unworthy of him who before the heavens are not pure and who charges his angels with folly. Lift up your heads, O gates. Who is he in person, nature, character, office, and work? The answer is given by what must have been thundering, loud music. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That's the answer to their question. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. Having just won victory in the battle against sin, death, and hell. So as the procession enters the ancient, mighty doors, as the king ascends to his rightful place on the throne, and sits down at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as the matchless king through all eternity. Crown him with many crowns. Crown him the Lord of all. One with the Father known, one with the Spirit through him given from yonder glorious throne. To thee be endless praise, for thou hast died for me. Be thou, O Lord, through endless days, adored and magnified. 
Crown him with many crowns. His glories now we sing. Who died and rose on high. Who died eternal life to bring. And lives that death may die. Crown him with many crowns. Crown him with many crowns. Well, I hope, beloved, that your soul awakes when you hear this. Unlike Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, where, they, where the people who were celebrating his entry killed him just a few days later, the entirety of heaven welcomed the return of the king when he ascended into heaven. These last verses reveal to us Jesus Christ as our representative man who fulfilled the full character described and therefore by his own righteousness ascended the holy hill of Zion. Only Jesus could ascend because his hands were clean and his heart was pure. In verse 10, we also see Christ as warrior king. He is the God of the armies. 1 Samuel 17, 44. Then David said to the Philistines, You come with me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you taunted. The closing note is inexpressibly grand. Jehovah of hosts, Lord of men and angels, Lord of the universe, Lord of the worlds, is the King of glory. All true glory is concentrated upon the true God. For all other glory is but a passing pageant or a painted pomp of an hour. The ascended Savior is here declared to be the head and crown of the universe. The King of glory Our Emmanuel is hymned in most sublime strains. Jesus of Nazareth is Jehovah Sabaoth. Selah. There. What do you think of that? (laughs) So as we close out our time together this morning... I want to leave you with three ways that you can give homage to the king. The first one is to obey your king's commands. God, who is ruler of all, is worthy of all of our obedience. I want you to, um, this week, I want you to identify an area in your life where you're not obeying the Lord. 
John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The second way we can give homage, homage to the king is to carry out your king's commission. Evangelism is a gift, but we've also been commissioned. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then the Great Commission we're all familiar with. Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So the third way we can give homage to the king is to enjoy your king's communion. He not only is our high king, but he also wants to have communion with us. Isn't that humbling? The king of glory, the mighty king, the warrior king, the God of the universe, wants to have fellowship with us. When I think of the wickedness of my own heart, I think... How is that possible? But he does. He does. John 15 says, Just as the Father has loved me, I also, also have loved you. Abide in my love. Isn't it comforting to know that the God of the universe whom we serve is Lord of all? And, and the one who wants to have communion with us, he's Lord of all. And if that weren't enough, that same God has made it so that through his son's sacrifice, we can dwell with him in eternity, forever. Who can dwell with him? Who can ascend his hill? Those whom the Son has given His clean hands and His pure heart. Isn't it wonderful that He is a mighty warrior king who fights for His own? Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, leave here today in full confidence that you belong to the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts, the mighty King. Let's pray. Father, as we have just seen your majesty and splendor, from ownership of everything to King over all, help us give you the glory and honor that you so richly deserve. Help us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Thank you for your servant David, 
the sweet singer who put down these words in response to his great love for you. Mm. Give us that same heart as he was a man after your own heart. As we go forth from here, let us be bold servants for you, our King, and proclaim your kingdom to all who will listen. That you desire to be their king and give them blessing and righteousness as the God of their salvation. And Lord, as we continue to draw near to you, we ask that as your word tells us, that you will draw near to us. In the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.